0: Welcome to another episode of the Modern Aikidoist podcast. The topic today is, is tradition helping Aikido or hurting it? I present this topic not merely to point out problems or even to say that I have the answers, which I don't. These are merely things to consider in an attempt to find greater understanding. These are things which I've been observing and thinking about for quite some time now, and maybe together we can find some ideas on how to effectively address them. What I'm presenting here is not meant to be the last word on this matter. Instead, I'm hoping that it starts an open and frank discussion about things that people are hesitant to talk about. Before we get into it, I want to start with this disclaimer. I'd like to discuss this topic without it getting personal. If you feel that a concept that I cover in this discussion hits too close to home, please avoid the temptation of thinking that I'm calling out you or your organization. I'm not doing that at all. It's a tricky thing to identify counterproductive behaviors without people getting offended. However, sometimes the medicine has a bitter taste, even though it's what the patient needs to cure what ails them. The first step is to realize there may be a problem. Let's also acknowledge that there are many dojas and organizations out there, all with differing levels of health. I'm in no way saying that all are acting the same way. In fact, they all act a little differently. Some are better than others, and a few have some real problems. I don't want to dig deep into uncover their dirty laundry, but merely to cover some of the systemic things that I see many have in common. So with these things in mind, sit down and take a deep breath and let's take a rational look at tradition in Aikido. There are a number of relevant aspects to this topic and I could kind of pick them in any order, but we have to start somewhere. So let's begin with pinning down the word traditional, which may be a bit like trying to nail jello to the wall. Traditional usually reflects a historical reference to the way something is done a long time ago. The problem that this is a kind of an open term is how far back do you go to determine your tradition? Do you go back 10 years? Do you go back 20, 30, 50, 100 years? All of these could be viewed as a traditional way of practicing the martial arts. The reality is though that each of these time periods, they were practiced a little differently. Sensei's martial art evolved a great deal over his lifetime from when he was young to when he was middle-aged and then as he was older. So at what point do you determine which was traditional? If you take a look at Iwama Aikido, you see a perfect example of an attempt to preserve the exact same teachings as O sensei originally presented, which is great. It's such a tribute to the way that O sensei taught it while he was alive. I think there's two things to consider here, though. Firstly, O sensei talked about Aikido continuing to evolve as a living art. If it's strictly preserved, then how does it grow? Preserving it as it was implies that it really won't grow. It will stay exactly the way that it was in that moment in time. And the second point which addresses signal loss. At best it will be an accurate copy of what Sensei was doing when he passed, but what about over time when the teachings don't have the same exact same content that he had? It's very easy for any teaching over time to lose the signal due to the the old telephone game problem of every time you repeat a message, it gets a little bit more distorted. And the more and more you do that, the less connection you have with the original signal. And you look at what Aikido has done since since his passing, and sometimes techniques have been removed from the curriculums and been narrowed down. I think that the greatest innovations in martial arts have come from opening up and combining really great influences from other sources. Most people are very familiar with Bruce Lee and his criticisms of the Chinese arts in that they became so rigid and traditional and bound that they were not living up to their potential, that they had room to expand and innovate, but this innovation was being restricted by the seniors and the venerable elders that didn't want to have outside influences. It seems that Lee posed the question, is traditional practice making the art better or worse? Now, I'm no scholar on Bruce Lee, but I have read quite a few books on him, including some compilations of his notes which were assembled after his passing. The series by John Little comes to mind and it was fantastic. The relevant aspect here and what I understand of Lee's perspective is that he did not believe in a rigid and limited way that Chinese arts were codified and taught. He just didn't think it was effective. He was a critic of kata and believed that arts were limiting themselves by not adopting other techniques from other arts, which were efficient and effective. Does this situation sound familiar at all to the Aikido world? It definitely sounds like that to me. Because human nature is what it is, it kind of makes sense. You find, in a period of time, something that works, and it works really well, and you respect it so deeply that you want to see it preserved. But over time, things tend to decay. Any living thing is either growing or it's dying, and a martial art is definitely a living thing. So over time, though, if it does not continue to grow, it will wither, and it will become less relevant. The lifeblood of a martial art is innovation, and we must always be growing. That means having to question tradition, having to sometimes leave behind things which could be done better. This is the nature of any innovation, whether it's technological, artistic, whatever. You always have to move on and do something better than what you were shown. The problem is that's not easy. It's very easy to just take direction and go through motions that you're shown and copy them. It's not as easy to actually innovate and make them better. But that's our responsibility as martial artists. And of course, a martial artist doesn't practice in a vacuum all by himself. You usually get within a group of like-minded individuals that want to practice and train and learn their art and build their craft. And so you get a team. You get a dojo or a practice group, maybe even an organization that you become part of where you can gather together with people that want to do what you want to do, train in the art that you want to train in. This is perfectly sensible, logical. I mean, it's how things work. But that doesn't mean there's not some pitfalls to it. A good team is as good as the sum of their parts, and an outstanding team is greater than the sum of their parts. A poor team has a group of skilled people who are not performing up to their potential. When this happens, it's not that the team members or the leadership are bad people. Very often they are good people, but they are not working together as effectively as they could. Here's where we need a moment of pause. It's very easy to get drawn into assigning blame and finding a single person whose fault it is that the results are substandard. But we can't do this. It's far more effective to identify the problem and work on a solution, leaving the personal side out of it as much as possible. There are good and even great people throughout the Aikido community. Getting into judging people is a bad path and will produce only resentment and animosity. No good ideas or results will come from it. But this brings up a very good question are organizations supporting the tradition good for Aikido or are they hurting Aikido? And I'm not talking about any specific organization, just the concept of organizations and how they tend to function. So let's take a look at it by imagining a generic Aikido organization. And let's say that this organization has a shihan at the top, Uh, no particular person, but just imagine one shihan who says, okay, here's Here's powerful Aikido, and even let's say that the Shihan is really, really good. Great technician, his Aikido is really solid, everybody admires him, and that's what brings him students. Students come to him and say, I want to be like you. The first thing to realize is that even though somebody might have really good technical ability, does not necessarily mean they can teach effectively or create a high level of skill in their students. There are many superb martial artists out there, even world champions, who have students that have a very poor level of skill. That's not their fault. Some students merely want to be part of the community and want to learn and don't have ambition to be a top-level martial artist. That's fine. We must acknowledge, though, that the future of the art will not rest on the shoulders of students like that. The worst thing that could happen is you take a student like that and make them an instructor, and eventually over years they become leaders of the organization. It's fine to have students that lack the ambition to be elite level martial artists or even really, really good. The art has the best chance of staying effective when the instructors are the best technicians and martial artists and are encouraged to innovate the art. On the other hand, the art is doomed when innovation is not welcome and it's locked out. And you take your talented people, the ones who are the most ambitious and passionate about making sure that the art is martially sound and effective and basically shunning them or, or driving them out. I think a healthy organization would be one that takes its best technicians, best teachers, and best coaches, if you use that modern term, and make sure that they are in charge of seeing to the students' development. Oftentimes this does not happen, however, and usually it's merely rank that, that gets people put into instructor's positions, regardless of their ability to teach or their ability to bring the best out in their students. Now I'd like to switch tracks a little bit and talk about how practice tends to go on within Aikido in general, whether it's uh, an independent dojo or part of an organization. It seems like most of the practice comes via paired kata. Now paired kata, as I've talked about before on this podcast, is has its place in a training cycle, but it's an early on basic exercise. and It's a good way to introduce students to technique, but it's something that's more of an entry-level kind of thing to get them used to the basics of movement, position, angles, grips, uh, entries, that sort of thing. It's just something that has to be worked past as part of the training as it goes on and goes up in level. And all too often, the easiest thing to do is to have students go through paired kata and just kind of go through the motions. And when it happens this way, kata becomes a dead practice. And I think this is something that Lee talked about a little bit. Uh, in his criticism of katas. Now one thing that I've noticed in how organizations tend to function is they take these paired katas and make them into the testing requirements. And not just at the lower Q ranks, but even up into Shodan and Udansha. Most of the organization testing that I've witnessed tends to be, show me, here's an attack, I want you to show me this particular defense from it, and go. And the test winds up being mostly made up of that formula. Well that means that the organization's testing requirements are reflecting only showing very basic training methods. And that doesn't really make sense to me because if at a high level by black belt and in the Udantia tests wouldn't you want to see a student be able to show not just basic training practice but advanced application. Remember testing requirements have a profound effect on the training itself. Anybody would want to train to meet the requirements required to pass their next test. So if the test requirements are merely seeing a good example of paired kata, then that's what the training is going to prepare people for. But if merely learning choreography and copying choreography is the test requirement, where is the attention to building the skill of Aikido being dynamic and useful in a real-world type environment? I don't know. It does lead to the question, why do martial arts come to this? I think the answer is both simple and logical, and that is it's a commercial motive. You get more students when you can say, all right, you don't really have to be ambitious. You can show up and we'll show you how to do these things. It's quite simply, You get more students. And you could even make the argument that it's very good to have more students because that provides a greater chance of longevity for the art to have more people practicing it. But is it a good thing for the art to simplify the training so much so that more people can get it when you will alienate the people that are ambitious and not give them the type of training that will let them achieve their full potential or their ambition? It may seem like this problem is a modern one with dojos that want to be commercially successful. But the thing is that in history, this goes back even to the 1400s where warriors and soldiers who were successful came back from war and they were often approached by nobility to teach them how to fight and how to use fighting skills to defend themselves. And of course, since they were doing it for money, these soldiers and and warriors who were probably not very rich were very happy to be paid in silver uh, to teach nobility how to handle themselves. In most cases, these instructors found that they could keep getting paid by expanding their curriculum and keeping the attention and the interest of these students who always wanted to learn more. and thus getting paid. Nothing wrong with getting paid to fulfill somebody's desire to learn. And if a creative instructor can come up with more and more lessons and all kinds of different new things for the student to learn, he can make a career out of just being an instructor and keep the same student's attention and his money coming in the more things that he can come up with that student to learn. When you think about it, it appears that modern organizations kind of follow the same model. They want to have more and more Students staying around as long as possible and therefore you have to ask do these organizations are they serving the art? Or are they serving their own interests? What exactly is their priority? Is it merely to recruit and retain students or is it to enhance the art? I think that's a good question to contemplate The next topic I'd like to cover is what becomes of an art that has no objective measure of skill and how does that play out over time? We take a look at something like karate, uh, which has its contact competitions, or judo, which has its live competitions. You can see that competitors really flush out the things that work. They prove that their technique works in an adverse type situation. They get to actually play with it and uh, find out the things that work and the things that don't. And their art grows over time because of this. Now competition has a downside as well. Every martial art that has become a martial sport has had problems with having to make rules that limit it hard enough so that it becomes very hyper-specialized. And many, many arts have gotten this, and primarily because they want to make their art, it's not only safe, and one can understand why you'd want to have your martial art practice be safe, but it's also to make it more exciting for fans because, again, the money-making aspect is, If you are making money doing it, now you have something that's sustainable. You have not only you're making money, but you can keep the activity going. But is that money influence a positive one? In some ways it is, but I think in some ways it's not. So is competition the answer? I don't know if it is. Certainly an objective measure of skill would be very helpful. Uh, And a lot of people will bring up uh, Shotokan Aikido or Tamiki Aikido, as being a good example of Aikido engaging in a live active competition type scenario. On its face, this seems like a good idea. And I think the Shotokan students who engage with these tournaments get some active experience and skills that uh, people who just do paired kata practice don't get, which is, that's a good thing for them. I think the downside though, that these competitions, their rules are so limited, such as no striking or no striking to the face. I don't know all of the rules, but As I understand, there's little or no kicks. Uh, The more you limit these rules, the more you isolate the art and make it not as useful against somebody who will use punches to the face, kicks, uh, body locks, takedowns, all kinds of different attacks. So in the end, is competition the answer? I, I don't necessarily think it is, but I do think active, vibrant practice against highly motivated uke's that are given the freedom and latitude to attack you any way that they want to would be beneficial and I have found it to be beneficial in training. One other thing I'd like to talk about is a staple of organizations and that is seminars and how they tend to run and how they tend to function and the role that they play in the student experience. Again I'm not speaking to any particular seminar here or organization seminar or how they handle it but just broad seminars in general. I've attended what I think is a pretty broad sample base of seminars hosted by different organizations and under different shihans. The conclusion that I have now is that the format tends to be a poor one for learning. And I can understand the dilemma from a teaching perspective. You've got one instructor and maybe anywhere between 40, 50, maybe up to 80 or 100 students on the mat at the same time. Colleges and schools go through the same problem. How can you effectively teach? having such a high student to teacher ratio. It's hard enough in a classroom, much less on the mat, where you need to have an instructor or an experienced person work very closely with a student to make sure that they're not struggling and that they're actually learning. I found that I had the best seminar experiences when I was in the Q ranks, and I had a lot to learn about Aikido, and any exposure was beneficial. But as I became more experienced, I came to realize that seminars really are kind of a lowest common denominator type learning environment. And it's understandable. If you look at it, at 50 students, you look at maybe you've got 20% of them or so that are udancha, maybe another 10 or 20% that are uh, about that level, maybe brown belt level. And then you've got a lot of them who are brand new students or beginners uh, or maybe intermediates, and they need a little bit more time. And it's easy to have material go over their head. And so therefore, the instructor cannot present high level content because this, those students will just get confused. They'll be lost or they'll be unable to enjoy or get anything out of the experience. The one aspect to seminars that I think is very common is the expectation that if your dojo hosts a seminar, you have to go. And this makes sense because the revenues that they raise for the, from the attendees goes usually to pay the Shihan's traveling expenses and their uh, stipend for them to come, which oftentimes is quite a bit of money. And so in order to be able to host an event like that, you need as many students on the floor as you can get. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I have seen is people that attend the seminars because they kind of feel guilty that if they don't attend, that they won't be considered for promotion. And again, we come back around to what are the testing requirements and what are the expectations of getting a student promoted. I've even seen students that uh, go through quite a bit of consternation about attending a seminar because they have to give up on their wedding anniversary, they have to give up on a family graduation or a birthday or something very special because the seminar happens to fall on that same day. And they feel tremendous guilt because they don't want to give up on the idea of being promoted, but they also want to keep peace within their family and at home. I do think at this point that pursuing rank is one of those things that can be very dangerous to the art. I think Q ranks are useful to help organize a student's advancement up to Shodan. And I think the showdown rank and test is very important. I think it's one of those coming of age uh, threshold points of your training that's just really crucial to people and students to acknowledge that they are now at a new level, that they are a a serious student and one who's dedicated to the art. I'm not as convinced that Udancha ranks are as useful. And I think the best argument is uh, probably for second and third degree to show that not only the Shodan level is a, a good, serious student, but a Nidan and a Sandan level are starting to understand more the intricacies of the art. So I think there's an argument to be made there, but uh, what I've seen of people that pursue Udantia ranks, uh, far too often they have what I call the merit badge syndrome, where they the, they'll do whatever it takes to pursue just that rank, and they'll do the bare minimum to try to get there, as opposed to really being in it just for the joy of the art and the dedication to their own enrichment and skills. That reminds me of a really great quote by Napoleon Bonaparte. He said, a soldier will fight long and hard for a bit of colored ribbon. And I think this is kind of the same thing with pursuing higher ranks and ranks in general, is it can be used as a motivational tool, but only when it doesn't get in the way of what the real goals for their self-improvement are. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you think about tradition in Aikido and our organizations helping it or hurting it. Please feel free to comment on this video if you're watching this on YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast, you can come to the Facebook group Aikido The Marshall Side and throw up a comment. I'd love to hear from you. Please support the show by subscribing, like and share it, and please provide comment. Enjoy your training.